through First Corinthians, or sorry, Leviticus actually today. I'm going to correct myself. I started to think, which which chapter are we in First Corinthians? And realized that wait, yeah, Leviticus chapter seventeen. Before I read the text, I'd like to pray. So please pray with me. Lord, You know the needs that each of us have. You know our past. You know our present and our future. You know all the sins that we've committed. You know us thoroughly. You know our burdens. You know our fears. You know how we need to be strengthened. And Lord, I would ask that You would use Your Word today to minister to each individual's heart, to help them to see the things that they need to be reminded of, to learn. Lord, help me to be a faithful instrument that You would use Your Word to shape us, to be the the children that You've called us to be, and uh, that You would strengthen us and, and help us to find joy in recognizing again the sacred significance of blood. Lord, we ask these things in Your name. Amen. Leviticus 17, the text is... Verses 10 through 12. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Who in their right mind would want to buy real estate in the bleak deserts of Saudi Arabia? In that region, there is very little to attract tourists. Very little to welcome inhabitants. In fact, a simple glance at the topography or a picture of the region would lead prospective buyers to more aesthetic locations. And there was little to attract people centuries ago. It was purposefully avoided and only shepherds and Bedouins would be found traveling through that region until somebody decided to dig. And when they dug, they discovered black gold. A seemingly worthless landscape became some of the most coveted real estate in the world, but only after it was dug up. The same is true of Leviticus. This book in the Bible is rarely frequented. In fact, often, like a desert people, as they're reading through their Bibles in a year, they get to Leviticus and all the progress that they made stops and it dies. It appears to offer little profit and appears to be only a desert of lists and instructions which Bible readers must cross through in order to get to the more fruitful land 
in the rest of the Bible. But the reality is we cannot avoid going through Leviticus, digging into Leviticus, if we're looking for gold. Because when a reader chooses to dig into the book, they will find some of the most profound and precious truths of the Bible. But, again, in order to strike this gold, we need to dig. The book of Leviticus uh, is really a book that describes to the Israelites how they are to live in light of the presence of God dwelling among them. It's part of Yahweh's instructions to Moses about the establishment of Israelite worship. Because as a holy God, in dwelling with Israel, he demanded that they would be holy as well. Because God's presence would be among them, any failure to remain holy would actually result in certain death. So God gives the Israelites these instructions so that they might survive, so that they might live in his presence. So either they had to be holy because he was holy or he could no longer dwell with them. But the design for them was that he would dwell with them and that they would be his people and he would be their God. And so Leviticus, in short, simply explains to the Israelites how they could live in the presence of of a holy God. The first 15 chapters of Leviticus describe to the Israelites how they are to worship, a lot of instruction about sacrifices. And it also explains things which might defile their holiness. In chapter 16, which really is the central focus of the book, everything kind of hinges on chapter 16, it describes the day of atonement. How despite their impurity, holiness still could be attained through the Day of Atonement, through the sacrifices and the worship that would take place on that day. that The, the Hebrew for Day of Atonement is Yom Kippur. And that's what we describe, call it today. And then chapter 17 through the end of the book explain how people should live in light of the holiness that was accomplished on the Day of Atonement. So similar to New Testament epistles, you have theological instruction on... Uh, who God is, and then you have practical instruction, just like you will in 1 Corinthians. So, so somewhat like that uh, is Leviticus. Gives theological instructions and then explanation of how to live that out. Chapter 17, where we're at today, begins this practical section, which answers the question, how should people live now that they've been made holy? Now that people have been set apart to be God's people, They've been sanctified. What does a sanctified life look like? And the first part of chapter 17, really verses uh, 1 through 9, give regulations on making sacrifices, proper sacrifices. And then we come to verses 10 through 12. And in this section, Yahweh explains the sacred significance of blood. And he does this so that we might properly appreciate the consequences of of our sin and the consequences of holiness. And he does this by explaining a regulation against eating blood. Then he gives an explanation for the regulation. And then he repeats that regulation again. So let's first examine the regulation against eating blood in verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel 
or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So really two parts to this verse. You have the warning and then you have the consequences. And we do a similar thing with our children. We'll tell them, Joseph, if you insult your sister one more time, you'll get your mouth washed out with soap. And one time as a child, I did not take that threat seriously. And in a streak of glorious justice, my mother surprised me when she filled my mouth full of nearby hand soap that was um, next to her. Children need to heed the warnings or else they will be punished. And the same thing is here. Heed this warning. And the warning that God gives is that nobody is to eat any blood. And the word actually means... Literally, to eat. It doesn't say drink. It means to eat. And so what it's talking about is actually eating flesh, eating meat with the blood still in it. That, with the blood having not been drained out after the animal was killed. And this statute is first mentioned actually in Genesis chapter 9 verse 4. When God made his covenant with Noah. It's also mentioned again in Deuteronomy 12, 16. Deuteronomy 12, 23 and 25. It's mentioned again uh, here in Leviticus in 15.23. Now, if you think about that, the repetition of this command all the way back from Genesis and in these other books of the Pentateuch, it shows us this is no small command. This is serious. In fact, it was even given before the law was given to Moses back in Genesis. It demonstrates its great importance. And it applies both to Israelites and to foreigners. As we see in verse 10, anyone of the house of Israel means anybody of Hebrew blood, anybody who was descended from the patriarch Jacob. And the sojourner referred to anybody who was not of Israelite blood yet dwelt among them. Could have been from another tribe, could have been some of the Egyptians. We know that some Egyptians came along with them. Um, And so this was, they're not Jews, but they dwell with Jews and Uh, may or may not worship Yahweh. These non-Jews agreed to abide by the laws of the Israelites, and in return, the Israelites would protect them. And they enjoyed this equal protection, but they didn't enjoy the same privileges as the Jews. At the same time, they didn't have to abide by the same obligations that the rest of the Israelites had to abide by. So again, they had to follow laws regarding practical holiness, but they didn't have to follow the laws regarding worship. So they had to follow the laws regarding holiness because God's presence was still within them. In their presence, they had to live rightly or they would have to be cut off. But they didn't have to follow the worship laws. Similarly, when you invite uh, or when your children invite a friend to maybe come over for the evening. They don't have to do chores. They don't have to participate maybe in family worship. But you would still expect them to abide by the rules. If they started to swear like a sailor at the dinner table or they started to eat their hands with spaghetti and just kind of do whatever they felt like, they wouldn't probably stay very long. The same is true for the strangers who abided with God's children. They had to live holy lives, follow the rules, but they didn't necessarily have to participate in all the worship. 
Therefore, any regulation that has to do with holiness and daily living had to be observed by both the Israelites and the sojourners who traveled with them. Now, you'll notice something that's interesting. Holiness actually isn't even mentioned in the immediate context. There's this warning about eating blood, but it's not explicit in regards to maintaining personal holiness. So why would God make this regulation for both the Israelites and the sojourners? The reason is because blood is universally sacred. It's a universal principle. God wanted all men everywhere to recognize the sacred significance of blood to the extent that if they failed to abide by this, they would be killed. That is the sojourners who dwelt among them. Because he says the warning, the consequence for not heeding this warning is that they would be cut off. God says that he will set his face against the person who eats blood and he will cut them off from amongst his people. What it means when he says he'll set his face against them is that his own person will be against them. Multiple times within the book of Leviticus, there are regulations given so that God's presence could dwell among his people. Again, the word presence is this very word, face, that's used here. The point God is making is that the person who sins in this manner is sinning in his face. So they would be, the person who eats blood is doing it in the face of God. And so God says, if you rebel in my face by eating blood, I will cut you off in the presence of everyone else. And destroy you. So God's presence, which is something that was supposed to offer comfort and security and peace, would immediately be turned into something terrifying. If this person chooses to eat blood. It says he'd cut him off. The word uh, means, it's a term, it could mean to be separated. But in this context, it's clear what the consequence is. They will be separated from their life. They'll be cut off permanently they'll be executed what's clear and what Yahweh wants to make obvious is that eating blood will result in certain death eating blood was a violation against God because God had given blood a profound significance and he explains this in verse 11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it on the altar To make atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. So this verse gives three reasons for the significance of blood. First of all, blood represents life. Secondly, God gave blood specifically for atonement. And blood atones by the virtue of the life it represents. So the first thing he notes is that blood represents life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The word here for life is the word nefesh. It's used actually five times throughout uh, this section. It can be translated sometimes life. Sometimes it's translated person. Throughout the Bible, it's translated mouth. Uh, Most commonly, soul. But it could also be translated appetite or craving. It's a word with a number of different nuances. And I I like the word soul because we tend to use the word soul in 
different forms as well. So for instance, we might say a ship carries 300 souls. Or when we say a person's soul has departed, we mean their life is gone. It has that same sort of idea. And this is important because the passage actually demonstrates this connection between a person and their life. The life essence within them. When a person loses blood, they effectually lose their life. Their life is drained from them. A person's existence is dependent upon having a healthy circulation of blood throughout their body. That's why when we get cut, we put a bandage on it. Because if, if, the, if the blood keeps coming, if it's a severe enough cut, we'll lose our life. We'll die. So the connection between life and blood is obvious. So God uses blood to represent life. As he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the second reason for the significance of blood is that God gives it for atonement. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood, because blood represents life, God has given blood the specific purpose of accomplishing atonement. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Now recognize that when a person sins, two major problems arise. The first is, they are now under the wrath of God. The second is, they are separated from Him, and a permanent rift has emerged between them. The relationship once enjoyed can be enjoyed no longer. So every sin that's committed has this consequence. It brings wrath and it separates us from God, our creator, our sustainer. So every man on the face of this earth has this problem, which begs this question. How can we turn the tide of these problems? How can we restore things to how they should be? How can man escape the white-hot anger of God's wrath and at the same time regain God's love because of the separation that's emerged? Atonement is what solves both of these problems. You see the precious grace of God. He gave blood knowing the need that would come for an atonement. And in the ancient world, an atonement described the sacrifices that pagans would offer to their gods. So that the gods would not be angry with them. An atonement was what was offered in order to pacify anger. Just like if somebody's really angry with you, you know, you, you offer them money and maybe they'll, they'll leave you alone or something. It's to pacify anger. And this word has this nuance in the Hebrew mindset as well. But more than this... For the Hebrews, it wasn't just about pacifying the wrath of God in an atonement. It was also about reconciliation. Because God had called the Hebrews, the Israelites, to be his people. He wanted them to be reconciled relationally with them as well. So for the Hebrew, an atonement was necessary both to quench anger and bring about reconciliation. And Yahweh says here that atonement for sin can be accomplished through blood. And before explaining that more, just grasp that. There is a way 
to permanently be reconciled with an angry God. But if you don't follow this way, His anger is against you. There's also a way to be reconciled to to the relationship. But this is the only way. Through blood. The text says, I have given it for you on the altar. That refers to a sacrificial altar. I've given you blood so that an atonement could be made through sacrifice. But the question that you're probably asking yourself is, well, how does, how does a sacrifice accomplish reconciliation? How does it pacify anger? How does it restore a relationship? Notice the next phrase. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That's how it's accomplished. Blood atones by virtue of the life that it represents. Since blood represents the life of a creature, it also represents its death. Blood was sacred because it allowed atonement to be made for a person's sin through sacrifice. So a person could save their life by taking the life of another creature. That's what it means. A creature could be executed for the punishment in place of the person who deserved it. Again, remember that the consequence of every sin is death. Every sin is deserving of death. There is no small sin in the eyes of God. Whether it's a proud thought or an adulterous act. And this theme is repeated throughout scripture genesis 2 17 god warned adam in the garden you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest you die they did death occurred ezekiel 18 4 states that the soul who sins will die romans 6 23 repeats this theme in the new testament the wages of sin is death sin deserves death Moreover, God is a just God. He can't just not choose not to enact his justice. Therefore, he cannot allow any sin to go unpunished. And every sin, the consequence of that sin must be death. Or else Yahweh would not be just. So the only way, the only possible way a person could be freed from the wrath of God is if something dies in their place. Bearing their iniquity. So atonement can only happen when a life is taken. When Yahweh says that blood atones by the life, that's what he means. And so when an Israelite would come to the altar with their animal, their sheep perhaps, He was killing it as a substitute for his own sins. In effect, he would say, let the wrath that I deserve come upon this creature. And then he would slit its throat. And watch it die. And that was to show the Israelites, this is the cost of sin. It is death. Always. 
Ernest Gordon was a World War II prisoner who wrote about his experiences in a Japanese death camp. He was captured and he wrote about his experience of the along the River Kwai in Burma in his work, The Valley of the Kwai. And he records the experience of British prisoners, how they were treated like slaves. They would work 10 hours a day in horrific conditions. They toiled in 120 degree heat. They were tormented constantly by insects, by exhaustion, malnutrition. Monsoons would come in, disease. Beatings were routine. And so sickness and death just was everywhere. Those who were caught trying to escape were starved to death or bayoneted in the presence of everyone else. And he records at the end of one day, one of the Japanese guards announced to the prisoners that a shovel was missing. And he demanded to know who was responsible. And when nobody confessed, he began to get irate. And he started shouting, okay, okay, all die, all die. Shouting all the prisoners in the work crew would be killed. And then the guard cocked his rifle and pointed it at the first man in the formation and cocked the rifle at the man. And his threat was real. And the tension within the camp, Gordon says, was palpable. And at that moment, a prisoner stepped forward and confessed to stealing the shovel. The enraged guard began kicking and beating the helpless confessor. And still that British soldier stood at attention and took the beating with blood streaming down his face. And his stoical science, silence just so angered the guard that he continued to beat him. And he slammed his rifle on the soldier's head with such a force that he killed him. And the soldier just collapsed into a heap. And although the soldier was dead, the guard continued to beat him until... He was exhausted. And that evening, as the guards were counting the shovels again, they discovered that, in fact, no shovel was missing. That that soldier had confessed in order to save the life of the man who was standing in front of that rifle. The guards' demand was death. And the soldier shed his blood to pay for the life of his comrade. Similarly, God's demand for every sin is death. But unlike soldiers, the soldiers there, we know that we are all guilty of sin. We all deserve death. And there's no escape. Blood must be shed for an atonement to be made, for God's anger to be pacified and for our relationship to be reconciled. And that is why blood is sacred. The sight and smell of blood to the Israelites was supposed to remind them every time they saw it of the consequence of sin. Sin will result in death. So when they sinned, they were taking life away. And so notice what the consequences would be if the Israelites started to take 
blood lightly, as in eating it, as in defiling it. After a while, they would consider the consequences of their sin lightly. Atonement would become trivial. And then, therefore, an atonement would be a light thing. So if they take the shedding of blood lightly, or even the sight of blood lightly, they would take sin lightly, and therefore they would not take their relationship with God seriously. Making light of sin. And it would undermine everything Yahweh was trying to teach His people. He wanted them to clearly see, this is what sin does. That's why it was a regulation for both the Israelites and the foreigners. This is the consequence of sin. And likewise for us, it's, it must seem strange for an unbeliever who hears, maybe comes into a church, even singing some of the songs that we sang today, and hearing us talk about blood. We talk about blood like it's this great thing, which it is. But for the unbeliever, that would sound strange. There is a fountain filled with blood, filled, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood. Precious blood. Nothing but the blood. Maybe think about it, even as, as, as Christians, we can start to take blood lightly. We appreciate blood. And maybe it's because we just think about the benefits. And in fact, often when the gospel is preached in churches today, around the world, what gets emphasized is the benefits. And there is immense benefits. But if we don't also emphasize the reason for those benefits... If, those bene- if there is no atonement, what the consequences would be, we're actually undermining the work of Christ. If we don't emphasize that sin will result in death, Christ's death on the cross will not be seen as precious. If we just emphasize the benefits that come, but not the consequences, it won't be long before we start to take our sin like. And in fact, even take our atonement lightly. The atonement will be seen as simply a means to a better life. But if you were to see animals being killed day after day for sins, it would hold a lot greater significance to you. The sight and smell of blood would not bring about rejoicing any more than when you cut your finger, you don't start singing about it. It would bring grief. And likewise, that's what our sin should do. It should grieve us when we recognize death must now take place. There must be a death to cover this sin. So God closes this decree by repeating the warning and its consequence. Therefore, I have said to the Israelites, no person among you is to eat blood and no resident foreigner who lives among you is to eat blood. So that the Israelites would remember the consequence of their sin. Now, we as Christians, we live under a new covenant, though. We're no longer under this old covenant. So we don't have to follow this law about eating blood. Because this law pointed to our need for a greater sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that would sufficiently pay for our sin. So that we don't have to keep killing 
to pay for our sins. We need to recognize that it's only through faith in Christ that a person can be saved from their sin. And again, the whole law pointed to the need for Christ for a perfect sacrifice that was sufficient. Because there was no way that even the Israelites, even the best Israelites, could have led a holy, undefiled life. They were going to defile themselves at some time. In fact, frequently. They needed a perfect final sacrifice that would wipe away their guilt once and for all. That would permanently pay for all of their sins. And these small sacrifices were meant to point to Christ, as we read earlier in Hebrews 10. For the law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself. And it's therefore completely enabled by the same sacrifice offered continually year after year to perfect those who've come to worship. For otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers would have been purified once for all and so have no further consciousness of sin? That is, if these, sin, if these sacrifices actually work, why do we have to keep coming back? Why would they have to keep offering sacrifices? The point is because though these sacrifices were necessary, they, they didn't complete the job. They, there needed to be a greater sacrifice, a truly perfect lamb. Only God himself, taking on the form of man, would be sufficient to pay for our sins. He would have to die for an atonement to be made. It had to be him and him alone. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. The sacrifices were never enough. They were only pointers to the perfect sacrifice. And so this shows us that it's impossible for a person to be saved from the wrath of God unless they believe in Christ, unless they repent from their sins and follow after him. He is the way, the truth, the life. You can't be saved by going to Buddha, by going to Muhammad, by just trying to be good. You have to. To trust Christ. But the only way to trust Christ is if you recognize you can't do it. There's nothing, there's nothing in all the world in you or in anything else that is sufficient to pay for the wrath that you deserve. And if you believe that, you would embrace it and live according to Christ's example. He alone can save us from the penalty that we deserve. And so, Christ, it is in you alone that we put our hope. If there is anyone here who has yet to truly look to you, to recognize that you alone, your work alone, can save them from the wrath that they deserve, that you would help them to see, that you would open their eyes, soften their heart, to truly trust in the great power of the only sacrifice that can save us from our sins. And I pray for the rest of us that as we think upon your sacrifice,
that we would not think of sin lightly. That we would not trivialize the work that you've accomplished. That we would not sin casually. But that we would grieve the proud thought, the arrogant word, the unloving deed. That we'd grieve our sin, knowing what it cost to purchase our life. We ask these things in Christ's name because it's in Him alone that we have hope. Amen.